poker's legendary champions, next generation stars, and tireless ambassadors of the game, sharing their wisdom and guiding your journey to high achievement on the green felt. This is Chasing Poker Greatness with your host, Brad Wilson. Welcome, my friend, to another episode of the Chasing Poker Greatness podcast. As always, this is your host, the founder of ChasingPokerGreatness.com, Coach Brad Wilson. And today's guest on CPG is one of the premier PLO players in the world. He's the mental game and pot limit Omaha coach for poker training behemoth upswing poker, Dylan Wiseman. What is immediately apparent in today's conversation with Dylan is that he's an absolute goldmine of poker, performance, and life wisdom. And the level of respect Dylan has earned from the greatest poker players on the planet is off the charts. Not only was he hand-selected and trusted to produce world-class PLO products on upswing poker, but here's a recent exchange he had with poker legend Daniel Negreanu and the WSOP on Twitter after nabbing a PLO bracelet at this year's World Series of Poker. Dylan asked, how do we petition for more mid to high stakes PLO tournaments at the next WSOP? D-Negs responded, we can run five to six as a series and call them the Wiseman Invitationals with only one caveat. You are not invited. You emcee the events but cannot play because you are too good. And while I sense some playfulness from Dinegs in the tweet, there's truth in it as well. Your poker chips are not safe when Dylan sits down at your table. With that said, the man is an absolute gem of a human being on and off the felt, and it was an absolute honor and privilege having him drop greatness bomb after greatness bomb on CPG. So now, without any further ado, I bring to you world-class human being, poker pro, coach, and teacher, Dylan Wiseman. Dylan, how you doing, sir? I'm doing very well. How are you? I'm doing quite well. Good afternoon. Excited to have you on the program. Uh, you mentioned in our pre, pre-talk that you hadn't been home for a couple of weeks, so what you been doing? I was doing the exact opposite of sitting at the Rio. <laughs> which which is going I was skiing and spending time with my partner in Denver for a couple of weeks. So nice. pretty yeah, it was fantastic. I definitely needed the the separation from the work life because I'm sure as you're aware, a lot of and a lot of people are aware during the World Series, it's very much a it is a contained grind, a, a long contained grind. And I put myself into a particular headspace in order to be able to effectively navigate the World Series and everything around it. And it takes a little bit of time afterwards for me to decompress because it's very intense. Like my sleep isn't on in the same way, right? Like I'm sleeping five to six hours versus eight, which is what I pretty much do outside of the World Series. And so I was very fortunate to have planned or I was fortunate to have the opportunity to do the things after the World Series, just see some family, go skiing, spend time with my partner, my dog, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I know. I I need like consistent decompression i think um <laughs> running running like doing on the podcast grind uh coaching grind training like uh i was i was moving things around tomorrow actually because i'm like i need a day off like i just need one day to like go get a massage totally unplug not be connected anywhere and just like rest um i love that i i love that perspective and i think it's something that's actually underrated in the poker world specifically and spit 
particularly for poker pros who have either been doing it a long time in autopiloting or kind of more up and coming hungry professionals, because you're kind of told that your job is to get in volume. That's the only thing that you're supposed to do. It's like, get better, get in volume. And that's pretty much it. But from my perspective, and I think that, as you said, having coaching and having other responsibilities outside of poker, when you have a full system that you need to maintain, you're not allowed to not treat yourself like a human, right? You have to be taking breaks consistently. Like that's something that I did during this World Series that I didn't do in previous ones, where four months ago, I planned in breaks during the schedule when I knew that it would be X amount of time, as well as I didn't have any big tournaments to play during that particular time. And so if you can be more intentional with your breaks, like this morning, I literally woke up, got a massage before this podcast because yeah. I knew, yeah, just like you need that little bit of decompression um, consistently. And then once the big grind is over, getting longer spaces of decompression, I think both of them are very important. So I'm really stoked that you talked about that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, one of my higher level students who is, uh, it's funny to say unique, but unique in the poker space for pros in that he's very excited to play poker every day. Like he maintains that excitement. Like it's almost like infectious because like yeah. I, I've been doing this for 16, 17 years. And so like the uh, excitedness of waking up and grinding goes down over time, but he's like pumped to just get in volume and play. Like he just wants to play, right? Oh yeah. And I, I, I told him like, you know, to do the same thing, take a day of rest, just don't play, decompress. Um, and he feels lazy when he does it, right? Like he, he told me, like, I feel lazy. I feel like I could be doing something, like I'm missing out um, by not playing. And I'm like, you know, imagine it like you're going to the gym, right? Like you go to the gym, you do leg day, and the next day you're like, mm, I don't feel so bad, right? Like, would you do leg day again after the first day? No, you're going to take a break, right? Because you need... Um, you need active rest because you can hurt yourself, right? And, and like the mind is similar in the same way where like you may feel like you don't need a rest or that resting is like uh, lazy or however it is that you're shaming yourself basically, but you do need breaks to maintain motivation. You don't want to burn out and you quite frankly will play at a higher level when you come back too. 100%. You had two things that you touched on there, and I want to talk about both of them. The first one is one of my favorite things about coaching, which is getting a stoke from your students. Like that's something, that's one of the reasons I love coaching is one, it's because I'm helping other people grow. I'm, it's much more of a giving versus a taking kind of a thing, which kind of happens in poker a lot. But I also just get to interact with awesome humans who are stoked, right? Like if they're coming to me for coaching, they're motivated 98% of the time to get better. And I get to use that as a vehicle, not only to help them, but also to help myself. Like it's a reciprocal relationship where it's like, if they're waking up and stoked to talk about poker, I have to wake up and be stoked to talk about poker, which makes me stoked to talk about poker. It's a very beautiful, um, self-fulfilling cycle. And that's something I really appreciate. Yeah. And it, it comes in the form of too, of like just aspirations too. you know, like you, because let's face it, like when you're coaching somebody, in the best of circumstances, you see yourself in your student. You see the person that you used to be that is hungry, that is like wants to consume knowledge, is ready to get in the grind and just do whatever they can to be successful playing poker. And, you know, when you are reminded of your younger self that is hungry and excited and just plays because they love it for the joy, um, it gives you energy. Like there's a oh, clear yeah. benefit for the coach that's rejuvenating and probably, you know, just something that I wouldn't have anticipated before I got into coaching. But once you experience it, you're like, 
yeah, like this just feels really good. How long have you been coaching for? Uh, so five years or so. Um, but so the last couple of years or actually, so the last year I've put in like 12,000 hands, like I've played minimal volume and 10 coaching sessions a week, um, building out training, building up business, just all those other side things. And so I would say this year is the one it's the year where I've devoted the most energy into learning how to effectively communicate with people, how to effectively transfer knowledge, just like figuring out that different people need different buttons pressed, um, all those sort of like subtle nuances of poker. It's the first time that I guess I've invested significant energy into taking poker coaching as serious as I ever took playing poker itself. Got it. That's rad, first of all, because especially for me, I, I'm not quite at that distribution in terms of coaching versus playing. I'm still putting in a decent amount of volume, but it's not in this it's not in the same way that I used to, where I would grind 40 hours a week. Now, nowadays, it's more so I'm doing big sprints. For example, March Madness or the World Series, where I'm sprinting for one month to three months. And then outside of that, I'm focusing more on the infrastructure around my poker game, such as coaching, as well as working with like my analysts, for example, doing some deep sim work, making sure that my game is as primed as it needs to be. And I think that that balance, especially when you really start to devote more to coaching, you can feel where the more subtle lessons that you learned from poker become really, really applicable outside of the space that is just playing hands. And give me an example of that. Yeah, that's a great question. I was just about to give you that. Okay. So I actually think that there's a really big overlap when it comes to coaching and playing, particularly more the live poker side. Actually, I'd say both live and online because you need to be able to empathize. You need to be able to understand the thought processes of the people that you're working with. And empathy is a superpower in and outside of poker. And a lot of, a lot of us trained that empathy inside of poker, where we're sitting at a table, we're trying to better understand the thought processes that our opponents were kind of moving through in order to be able to navigate effectively. It's a little less important nowadays because of GTO, obviously. And you still need to kind of have that empathy component from my perspective. And then it's also just the, the rote knowledge aspect. From my perspective, in order to be a successful coach, you need to have both. You need to be a badass. So if you're, if you're teaching somebody PLO, you need to be beating sufficiently high games in order to justify the hourly rate slash the amount of time and energy that other people are giving you. So that's the first thing that I think is a big overlap, but then the empathy component is really big too. And so when it comes to, and from one, one thing that I really under underestimated when I was younger and really appreciate nowadays is that those poker players who are truly at the top tier, they can explain what's going on very simply. Right? If you were to talk to Chris Weiner, who I made my course with, he's one of the goats for online PLO. If you were to ask him like a very basic or maybe like a super advanced hand question and you think there's like 50 things going on, he'll give you like a five to 10 word answer. It's like, hey, this is how this works. And then that's the answer because that, that, that's just the correct answer kind of a thing. Yeah. And uh, so one of those individuals, um, Kyle Hinden, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but was crushing the uh, eight or better Eight or better heads up like 4K, 8K around 2004-ish um, okay. in high stakes DB. He was playing against Gus yeah. and stuff. And yeah, yeah. when he lived near me, it was really weird. There's actually like a bunch of high stakes players that lived in and around the Chattanooga, Tennessee area, um, which That's was very weird. It was really bizarre. There was like yeah. four of us. I remember being in a room once with four, uh, three other guys and thinking like, 
fuck, I'm the worst poker player in this house. Like, how is this possible? Like, that's um, a good thing. Like, that, that's <laughs> awesome to be in that spot. That's right. my, that's what, yeah, the way I hear that at least. <laughs> um, but Kyle, when you ask Kyle a question and he explains something, it, it's very simple, right? It's like in a way that he can communicate it effectively, very simply. And that's how you kind of know that this person knows their shit, right? Like, totally. It, it's like, wow, I, I'm because coming from somebody that knows a lot, you also think like, holy shit, it would have taken me two days to explain what he just did in, in 10 words, you know, um, which is just a magical thing. But that's how, yeah, that's how you know that somebody's operating on a very high level when they can just explain something very simply, very few words, and it just, you know, makes sense. 100%. It reminds me um, in college, I was fortunate enough to be one of the less intelligent from like an academic perspective of the group around me. They've all gone on to get like their PhDs, data scientists. Everyone's an absolute savage from that group. One of my best friends who's currently a data scientist, uh, we were taking the same math class and we had to write a proof. And I'm not, for those of you unaware of pure math, pretty much somebody asks you a question and your job is to using the axioms of mathematics, kind of give a structured answer that's logic from the beginning to end. My proofs would be like, three to four paragraphs long, his would be two sentences and his were always better than mine, hundred percent of the time. Cause I was trying to logic my way into getting to the answer. And he just knew the system so effectively that it was like point A, point B, point C, and he was done kind of a thing. Yeah. A lot of high level poker play boils down to efficiency, you know, just a lot of efficiency, getting rid of inefficiency, like spending two bets when only one bet will do spending, uh, 80% pot size bet when a 50% pot size bet gets the job done. Like a lot of leveling up in poker is just being more efficient with your actions. 100%. I actually can take that a step further as well, because when it comes to building a game theory sound poker strategy in 2022 now, right? We're almost there. Oh boy. Gener yeah, I know it's, it's happening. What, what kind of, what gets thought about a lot of the time is like, what would the solver do? It's like, well, they're gonna have eight sizings and all, and then they're gonna be perfectly balanced with the correct frequencies for all of those sizings. As a human, we can't do that. That's not, that's not how we function. That's not what we should be trying to do. Our job is to create an efficient strategy that only loses a small percentage of game value relative to that hyper complex strategy. And so efficiently has gotten taken to the next level where if you just have a simple strategy that's losing a little bit versus the perfect strategy, but you can execute on it at a really high frequency, you're going to slaughter because you're still going to be balanced. You're still going to have the appropriate sizings and all the right spots, but you've simplified it and made it efficient in such a way where you can actually use it as a human. And that, in my opinion, that's one of the more beautiful things that's come out of like, like Munker and this more game theory oriented way of approaching poker is that it's actually less complicated than you think it is as long as you approach it effectively. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. You, you always want to, the game is just so big, right? Like yeah. the tree is, just, it's just so big that like you have to simplify in lots of areas. And if you can do it effectively where you're not losing much, then yeah, of course you go for it, right? That's why exactly. like when I teach preflop strats to my guys, it's just simple, pure strats on ignition where like you're not rolling, you just have these hands and you just do this and it's not that bad. Like it's going to perform quite well because you're saving bandwidth, you know what to do. Um, some guys are like focused on rolling and miss, you know, game configuration data points that make a roll a pure open just because they're distracted by looking at the the silly role. I, oh, I was going to say the the thing that Kyle said back in the day. I, I I do remember what he said very simply. He just said 
when you have a marginal hand, you want your opponent to put the last bet in. <laughs> like, I remember he just like said that and I was like, hmm, yeah, that's like very well said. It was a, uh, I can't remember the exact situation, but it was a, it was basically like when you've got a hand um, with one bet left where that's like a bluff catcher, basically just let, mm-hmm. let your opponent put the last bet in because, you know, for all the reasons, but like he just said it very simply and it was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. That's, cool. that's very easy. Um, let's go back to the beginning, though, because we started kind of on fire and <laughs> skipped over your whole journey into the world of poker. So tell me, man, what does your journey into the world of poker look like? That's a great question. I started when I was 13. I got sick. I had like the stomach flu for two months, and that was the year that Moneymaker won the main. And so I just watched ESPN for those two months and got addicted to poker. I started playing online when I was 13, 14. Um, started playing for money and to actually help my family through the 2008 financial crisis around like 15, 16. Uh, by the time I got to college, that was right when Black Friday happened, which was fantastic for me because I didn't have that much money online at the time. And it forced me to become a human and make friends, learn. I got to study probability theory, financial engineering. So I got a solid degree, was around a bunch of phenomenal humans that helped to change me into the person, that, not change, but influence me to become the person I am today. And what was it about poker uh, to just go back? You know, what was it about poker that kind of held you there after those two weeks of being sick? Because eventually you got better and you kept diving deep into poker. So what was the pool? I was just a little ADHD kid and I needed something that was really complex to keep my attention. And poker is was the most complex thing that I'd ever found at the time. I'd played other card games like Yu-Gi-Oh, Magic, all that stuff. And poker just was it was the most fascinating because there was the most to learn and the most to figure out. I also really liked that there was a dollar aspect to it. I think young, young Dylan really was hungry in order to start getting and wanted to start getting after it. But I think a lot of it just came down to the fact that it was based in math and I loved math and, but it was also based in people. And I loved really trying to understand people and how they were interacting emotionally in different situations. And so the combination of those two things really just resonated with me and it never went away. And you mentioned people and, you know, we've mentioned empathy or you mentioned empathy too. So like, and I know you play a lot of live poker, like what, uh, how do I phrase this? Um, what's the ratio of like empathy to pure theoretical strats do you deploy like in, in live poker and your main game is PLO, right? Correct. Yeah. My main game is PLO. So that's going to depend on who I'm playing against. If I'm playing like a 25K against Yanni Ackermeyer, I'm not looking at the dude. I'm just, I'm just, whatever the correct answer is in that spot is what I'm going to be trying my best to execute on. As you kind of, so I, I think a better way to answer that question is my job is to better understand how far somebody is deviating from what is optimal. So I have to know what is optimal first, which means I have to put in all the study to know what the correct answer is. And then in order for me to deviate away from that, I have to use that more empathy slash just pure logic component as what, what, what am I, what is my opponent doing and how far away from optimal are they? And so I'd say that I'm probably like a 80, 20 G like game theory to human, but that it definitely depends for, for example, deep in tournaments, it depends on I, how human the person you're yeah, playing against yeah, is. <laughs> that's exactly, that's a perfect way of saying it. So I, I went deep in a couple of the lower buy-in PLO tournaments. I won one, one K and I got fourth in the three K six max. And what I really noticed in those two tournaments was 
especially really deep, the human aspect of people was just, it was firing super, super hard because they're playing for multipliers on what their biggest cash had ever been before. And so it was really helpful for me to know what the right way to navigate those situations were just from being putting work in ICM into tournaments generally. But I definitely was heavily leaning on the human aspect of knowing which type of people were more likely to know what the correct answer was and kind of fall in line in which people were just kind of clicking buttons slash use it, letting their emotions really dictate what was going on in terms of their play. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of pressure there. And if you're not used to that pressure, then, and you're unstudied, then it's just a double whammy where you're probably going to be making some pretty, pretty major mistakes. Yeah. That happened at the final table of the one K where there is one of my opponents he was like a long-term poker professional. You could tell that he kind of knew what was going on. I don't think he was the most up-to-date in terms of modern game theory, but he was on my direct left and he hated that I was opening 95% of pots, which is what you're supposed to do as a chip lead, especially as a big chip leader to peel a final table. You just get to click the pop button and people have to fold given the way that the math checks out. He didn't want that to be true. He really, really, really didn't want the math to be true. And it ended up costing him. He ended up pretty much making a pretty big ICM punt in terms of um, getting third instead of second, which was a huge buy-in gap between the two. And yeah, it's, it just, you don't want that to be, you don't want to fight math. Why, really why do you get to open like all the hands in PLO when you're chip leader near the final table? Phenomenal question. The main reason why is because in PLO, you have symmetrical equities, which pretty much just means that if I open aces and you have four random cards, you still have 30 to 40% on average. And so when you're the chip leader at a final table, your job is uh, to deny, yeah, you, you just get to deny equity from everybody. Because let's say that you open four <laughs> random cards and then they threw bet aces, they still only have 60 to 65 to 70% against your opening range, which is 90 to 95%. And they don't want to do that at a final table because they might make chip EV, but they burn the, they burn tournament ICM EV. Yeah, yeah I see it now because yeah. you always have a fair amount of equity. And so yep. that sort of handcuffs them in what they can do to combat. Yeah. And that becomes even more true the bigger your chip lead is. PLO tournaments specifically are ICM vacuums. And so whenever in a Hold'em tournament, you think that this is an ICM spot like the bubble, or there's a final table when fifth and fourth have a pretty big gap between the two of them, that gets multiplied a massive amount in PLO. Like there are spots where you limp aces 100% of the time on the button on a final table because you're literally not allowed to raise anything given the way that the stacks are distributed. Mm, yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. It's that's interesting. I, I I don't think I've ever played a PLO tournament. So <laughs> I, I've played, uh, studied and played a lot of PLO cash. Um, so like the equities running close together just makes a lot of sense in PLO. Cause mm -hmm. that's just how the game is constructed compared to like Hold'em where the equities still run fairly close together, at least pre-flop, but then start diverging more post-flop. Um, but you can have, you know, obviously 80, 20 in, in Hold'em. Um, so going back to your story, you said you were helping your family through the financial crisis. Um, how did your family feel about you playing poker at an early age? Any pushback there? I'd say that my parents approached it differently. My father was a little more pragmatic because he saw that I could actually help. And so it was a, it was a lot of, it was very much a, where, where are you from? Where, where'd you live? Live Like, why did the financial crisis, I guess, hit you guys so, so significantly hard? I grew up in Sherman Oaks, which is LA in mm -hmm. California. And my family was in the entertainment industry. Mm. And so particularly that industry got slaughtered during the 2008 financial crisis, because there was, it's really hard to spend money on entertainment when no one has money, generally speaking. 
And so my, my dad worked as an editor, producer, director, and just like all the, all the work dried up at that mm, time. I see. And, yeah. And so him and I, we developed a partnership where it was very much just like he trusted his 16 year old son to drive to live games on school nights and get back at midnight. And then he, he would, he'd wait up every single day, uh, every single time, just to make sure I got home. Okay. My mom had a little bit more trouble transitioning, but when she got there was very, very, um, supportive. The main thing I think for her was that she didn't see poker as being like, one of the things she always said was poker is not a good career choice, which makes a lot of sense actually from her perspective, because at the time, it wasn't really that good of a career choice, right? This was 2007, 2008. And so nowadays, now that she's seen the way that my current career has become more fulfilled in terms of not just the poker, but the content and coaching and everything, it makes a lot of sense because I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, which is something that you, I think, have empathy for, where there's multiple things going on that's not just me playing poker. I have the good empathy and the bad empathy. I have both, both all of the empathy for all the things. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I, this particular configuration of work is perfect for me. I, I love it. And I can feel that I can feel that it's correct because I actually don't get drained very much anymore in terms of the way that I've distributed the work that I have to do, who I've hired to kind of off offload some of my bandwidth and stuff like that. But going back to my mom, once, once she kind of saw what was going on, she became a lot more, um, a lot more supportive through that journey. And you're 16 years old. Like you mentioned, you're going to going to go play games. Like, are you fake IDing it into the casino? You playing home games? Home games, yeah. I just I just finagled my way. Los Angeles has a ton of home games, private games. I, I was playing. I was getting cheated in big private games before I was 18, for sure. Congrats, congratulations. Yeah, yeah I learned <laughs> I learned that lesson early, thankfully, and how to kind of spot it. Yeah, it, it took me till my mid 20s to get cheated in a big private game. So, yep. <laughs> I learned I learned it later on. I also learned all about the LA private games and just how horrible they are uh, as well in my my late 20s where yep. I, I remember um, like a specific hand that stands out was playing against Freddie Deeb uh, at some game somewhere. And I think it was 50 hundred and like we got it in for like 10K, so 100 bigs. We both had aces and the board ran out of chop and they sent us back 9,400 a piece. And it was like the first hand of the night. <laughs> like I, I, like he like raised hell and I was just like, what the fuck? And I remember thinking yep. like, this is not good. <laughs> this is not a good situation. I, I have a super vivid memory. It was actually about Mike Sexton because he was playing in some of the games that I was playing in when it was the exact same thing. First hand of the night, they get it all in. It's like a, not even that big. It's like a 1025 game. And they get it in for a hundred bigs and he gets back like 10% or 90% of his stack. And he looks at the host. He's like, Hey, is this, is this a thing? Is this real? <laughs> Are you allowed to do this? And the host is like, yeah, that's just, you know, it's a big pot kind of a thing. <laughs> and yeah, it's insane how, how heavily the games are raked and not enforced in any single way. There are tag teams coming into a bunch of different games that I was aware of. There are mechanics that I knew I they weren't, in the games that I was playing in at the time, but they were in the rotation of dealers in the games that I was playing. And yeah, it's that's actually something that heavily influenced my current poker life because from my perspective, if you're really trying to make it in the poker world and you get to the higher levels, there are kind of two roads you can go on. The first one is a private game road where you get good enough and then you start to network, you start to socialize, you start to try to build this brand for yourself where you can either run your own game or get into good games, right? It's a lot of networking and finagling. That's what, and if you, especially if you wanna to get to the very, very high levels, right? Like the 501k type stuff. 
there, there is a ceiling in the, in the publicly available games. And then the other road is just getting really, really good, as good as possible, and then playing as big as you can online, and then, and then going into the coaching slash um, content creation side as well, and disseminating the information that way. And I think early in my career, because I kind of dealt with all the finagly private game stuff, it just, it didn't appeal to me in any way. Yeah. I mean, I totally see that and understand that. You kind of piqued my interest. 18, first time you got uh, cheated. How'd that, how'd that go down? So this is a funny story. I think I've told it on stream. I was in a game and this, we called this the Russian game because it was run, it was in um, Tarzana, which is or off like which is the middle of the valley and it was me and my friend jimmy and the way that we got into the game was that our friend from high school was the dealer it was me jimmy and then seven russian dudes and so <laughs> um it was a great game it was like a i think it was playing two five or five ten and we were both stoked because it was obviously a very good spot and i ended up getting it in on the flop against one person who was the friend of the dude who ran the game slash was the boss and I said, okay. And I, I, I think I'd pop the second nut straight. And I said, okay, if you have a straight, we chop it. And he says, okay, we chop it. And he mucks his hand. And mm. I looked at him like, what? That's, that's not okay. We're not chopping. Because he knew that I had a straight. I think he'd pop like top two or something like that. Yeah. And he says, no, you said we chop. Then we chop it. And I was getting a little bit heated because I was young and not really aware <laughs> of my surroundings. Yeah. And- <laughs> don't, don't worry that I, I'm like a, a small person surrounded by seven Russians in yeah, the was- middle, of, middle of nowhere. In the middle, no, it was in the middle of the valley, which is even worse. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, worse exactly. than nowhere. Yeah, worse than nowhere. And my fr- thing, like, I got really lucky. My friend was the one dealing this game, right? Like, he was literally the dealer in this hand, and so he, I think he helped to dis- like to dissipate the situation. But it ended up being, I was like, okay, I'm just gonna take my money and leave. And then, is that okay? And they're like, yes, take your money and leave. <laughs> and I was like, sounds great. <laughs> so me and my friend Jimmy got out of there and. And once it was over, I realized what was going on and it kind of scaled back in terms of how close that was in terms of me dodging a bullet. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, that's that has really, really stuck with me uh, and was a good lesson. I got to learn for free. Right? Yeah, it was a very cheap free lesson that I'll, that I'll definitely take moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had uh, Thalo on the podcast and he told a story about how he decked a guy in a in a private <laughs> game and that. That 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 did not end um, <laughs> super well for him. <laughs> I love I love Al. That was a good friend of mine. That big I haven't heard that story, but that makes so much sense. Yeah, <laughs> that, I can't remember. One. I can't remember how it went down, but it was like it, it was like a dude who you don't mess with, who had like a member of like Israeli yeah. um, army with him, and like basically the guy said, you know, if you didn't give me action and you weren't fun to play with, like. I would end you <laughs> like this. This would be the last thing that you did. Um, <laughs> not, not a great decision. Um, yeah. where is that dude? I tried finding him by the way. He's not on social media. Probably a good, good decision by him. Fellow. Yeah. He's around. He's, he's he? living. A, he's living a good life. Uh, I've, I've seen him multiple times recently. He's a good yeah. yeah. I, I wanted to have him back on, but I could, I didn't have any contact information for him I'll, to, to reach I'll, him. I'll send it forward to him that you're, that you're looking to reach out. Cool. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Okay, so 18, dodged a bullet. Uh, you ended up going to school. When, where were you at in your life when Black Friday went down? So 2011. I was in the spring quarter of freshman year of college. Okay. And so and it so, was a great time for Black Friday to happen to me. Particularly because 
my first two quarters of college, I did okay. I went from being like never getting a B in my entire life to getting some Bs because I was immediately taking upper division math classes and you can't get by in that type of stuff. You actually had to try. Mm-hmm. And I and I was also experiencing, looking back on it, a lot of anxiety that I didn't have an awareness of at the time, but I definitely had some test-taking anxiety as well as some social anxiety. Moving from feeling very in control of my life, being a poker player, being able to support myself financially from a young age, and then going to college where that's that's just not how it works. Like everyone is as smart or smarter than you. And so you have to show up as a person. Nobody cares what you've done. It's more so like, how are you showing up today? I, I was experiencing a lot of anxiety and I had a lot of growing to do as a person. And I don't think poker would have been healthy for me at that time in my life. I definitely took a financial impact by not being able to play online during college, but that was not even remotely close to the amount that I've gained and learned because I didn't have poker for those really formative years of my life. Um, And this is kind of a, maybe an awkward segue, but moving to today, right? You mentioned that like, you noticed you were full of anxiety that you weren't really aware of, which Mm -hmm. to me says that now you are aware of it. Um, and you have a better awareness of the anxiety and how you're feeling. Like, what was the process like that bridged that gap? Like, is it um, meditation? Like, how did you improve as a human being over the last 10 years? It's a a big question. I know, Um, I know. I'll try to pick a couple things that are actionable. So I think the first thing is that I've been going to therapy for about three, three and a half years now. And I'm a huge fan of therapy. I go to therapy for myself. My partner and I have a therapist. She has her own therapist. We um, we, we both really value that perspective and having somebody that you trust kind of able to help you process as well as deconstruct what's going on inside of you. So I'd say that that was a huge thing. I've done a lot of self-work in terms of travel, in terms of meditation, like I'm big into meditation, breath work, all that jazz. I've done, I've done a lot of work with like psychedelic medicine as well. That's been very helpful for me in terms of kind of, and I'll, I'll finish on that one actually, because that goes directly into um, me really diagnosing my anxiety disorder. But also, I also just have had the absolute fortune to be surrounded by lovely, lovely humans. And that's something that I give an immense amount of credit for in terms of helping me develop into the person that I am today. Because not only did they help me kind of see where some of my areas of growth were, but they also helped me on that journey. And so having that framework for support has been super helpful. And if you don't mind me asking, you know, who was that framework? How did they communicate? Because it's like a, it's like a sticky situation, right? It's like, you know, coming from the coaching space, right? You see that somebody needs to make an upgrade, but it's not as simple as just saying, yo, you got to do this, right? Like you have to communicate effectively and it's very, it's a very sensitive thing. So, I mean, I think that it has, there's two components, uh, your receptivity as a human, but then also their ability to communicate effectively. Yeah. It's a phenomenal question. And I'd say that there was like a hundred different times that happened to me from the time of college to my current iteration. The, the ones that stick out to me are my friends in college and we were all a little young. And so they maybe didn't communicate this in the best of ways, but I used to have an awful tendency of just, you know, the dude that talks about themselves in every conversation. That was me, my freshman year of college. And I think that comes from that anxiety and that place of lack of self-esteem probably as well. And my friends were like, Hey dude, 
you're not allowed to do this anymore or you can't hang out with us. <laughs> not, a, not, not as mean. And these are still some of my absolute best friends. Yeah, they were doing this to help me at the time. But that was like a big slap in the face that I needed at that time in my life. And then the, for my first job outside of college, I kind of had something similar happen to me where I graduated college thinking I was a shit and went and worked on a team. I started my career in analytics and everyone in the analytics organization at this company was just an absolute badass. And it was the same thing. I showed up thinking I was a shit and they're like, hey, you need to talk less and you, you need to like listen more. Yes, you're very smart. And that doesn't mean you're a good analyst. That doesn't mean that you're good at interacting in an office environment. You need to take a step back and acknowledge what's happening here. So those are two really big ones. I'd say in my most recent iteration, it actually wasn't another person that helped with the anxiety disorder stuff. It was me recognizing patterns that I'd seen in other people. So as a coach, as well as somebody who's has a lot of conversations with people who are emotionally self-aware, I started to see habits inside of myself and tendencies that are directly correlated to an anxiety disorder. And so because, because I had that frame of reference, and then I brought that to my therapist, we had a full conversation about it. We deconstructed everything, showed up, saw how this showed up at multiple different points in my life. Um, and then I also really, during that conversation, what I really, really, really appreciated was her vocabulary around anxiety and depression generally, which is that everyone is on the spectrum for being anxious, being depressed. Those are human characteristics that we all face. Some people face it very, very strongly, right? To the point where there's a medical diagnosis, they have some sort of um, intervention, whether it be uh, therapy or, me or medication or whatever it is. But everyone kind of has these natural tendencies as a human. And so just because I am feeling down does not mean that I have a depression disorder, right? It means that I'm going through a funk. And then if it extends for a long period of time and I don't have the, the ability to get out of it, maybe it has progressed to some sort of a depression disorder or, it, or imbalance that needs to get actually intervened with. And that's what happened to me. It was actually right before COVID. I had gone to an, I had done an ayahuasca ceremony. That was a really intense and beautiful experience. But the couple of months after that, I was feeling more anxious and actually acknowledging that this was anxiety. And looking back now, I think when I, when I have this conversation, sometimes the general response is, oh, ayahuasca made you anxious. And my response to that is that it didn't make me anxious. It just showed me or it brought, it, it created more of a spotlight on my anxiety so that I actually was able to work through it. And that's something that I've been putting a ton of time and effort into over the past two years. And now that I'm on the other side of that journey, feel infinitely healthier. Yeah. It's like you gained awareness that exactly you were anxious, correct. right? Exactly and correct. That allowed you to start working through the problem. Yep. Um, why ayahuasca? Why the uh, experimentation with the psychedelic drugs in the first place? Good question. Um, I, I mean, this is something that like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I believe in very strongly. I've researched yeah. it. So just, yeah, me too. Yeah. So I think that the first thing for approaching psychedelic medicine generally is that I was, uh, I was introduced to it in a really safe and awesome environment in college. And so I was able to do LSD and other psychedelics in an environment that was we got really lucky that we backed into a really healthy environment, generally speaking. We were outside, we were around people that cared about us, right? There was a lot of love and connection and support. So even if people were going through something difficult, there was, there was the ability to process it either immediately or afterwards. And so I had a very safe introduction into psychedelics and psychedelic medicine generally. 
as I've gotten older, I've put in a lot more responsibility both on myself and on the people around me in terms of interacting with psychedelic substances because they are very, very powerful in a way that I didn't give enough credit for when I was younger. And that's actually what really drew me to ayahuasca specifically because it's done in a ceremony. It's done in a space that is specifically created for ayahuasca. You have somebody who is a shaman or, some, or another facilitator whose their entire career, their job is around creating a space for you to have this experience. And that is something to me, like set and setting is talked about a lot within psychedelics. I really came to respect that as I got older. And that's what drew me specifically to ayahuasca was the, the intention of that space and how it was set up to have whatever experience you needed to have. So uh, this is a silly metaphor, but it's kind of like poker in that the, you know that like position is important, but it's not until like you really dive deep in the game and understand that like, oh, just somebody that doesn't know what they're doing plays two times better when they're in position compared to being out of position um, that you, you're like, wow, this really, really, really matters, right? Like yeah. set and setting, they say that it matters, but like it sounds like once you experience it, you're like, holy shit, they weren't joking. Like it really, really matters. 100%. It's super, it's incredibly important. Um, and speaking of loving your therapist, uh, so process for selecting a therapist or finding someone that resonates with you. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, I love that. It's actually something I talk about relatively often with my students. The first thing that I always try to communicate is that you have to approach finding a therapist in the same way you'd approach dating, where it's very much a relationship between you and that person. And it's not always going to vibe just because somebody doesn't communicate in the way that you need to hear does not mean that they're a bad therapist. And just because you can't be heard by them doesn't mean you're communicating poorly. It just, it's very much a, the process of dating and finding your therapist who you want to date for a long period of time. And so generally speaking, some tips that I give are show up with questions as well as things that you want to work on with, with that person. It, it, you should have at least one introductory third, 20 to 30 minute call before actually taking on a session with somebody. And then use that 20 to 30 minutes to see if you actually resonate with that person and if their way of describing what's going on resonates with you. Very, very similar to finding a good coach. Let's say that you're like, I know Phil just put out, uh, Phil Galfon just put out a nice little YouTube video on this. But it's an, like, if you have a conversation with somebody and their thought process doesn't resonate with you, the way that they're describing the game or your, you in the, in the idea of a therapist, if that doesn't resonate with you, you're probably not going to have the best relationship with that person. So be very open to failure at the beginning and really, really hold out. Wait until you actually feel as if you want to learn from this person. And you'll know it's a very visceral feeling whether or not you want to learn from somebody. And then once you kind of get that, uh, have that experience, really dive into it and give it as much of it as you can. Could you describe the feeling because you know re resonate yeah. like you said it is kind of abstract hard to quantify yes. Yes. um any more like indicators that like okay this this is this is my therapist soulmate person <laughs> when they describe what's going on inside of you so you you give them a description they say it back to you and you actually feel those words you that is actually your experience you you can sense the empathy that they actually know or not know that they have an awareness and an understanding of what you're moving through. So if you say to somebody, it's like, hey, I got broken up with recently and it really hurts inside of me. And they go, 
oh, well, you just need to get stronger. That's not the response that you're looking for versus, hey, I just broke, I just got broken up with recently. It really hurts. And their response is, that sounds really challenging. Um, when you say that it hurts, does it feel like X, Y, and Z? And you're like, holy shit, it feels like X, Y, and Z, right? They, that person has the ability to very quickly deconstruct where you are. One of my favorite examples of this is um, Esther Perel. She was recently on Brene Brown's podcast and live on a podcast. These are two of the biggest badasses on the planet earth. Esther Perel, Brene Brown, they're just unreal good. Um, but as, um, Brene Brown's talking about her dynamic with her husband through COVID and Esther just gives a very concise description of exactly what was happening in their relationship dynamic. And then Brene is just like, okay, I need to stop because you just said exactly <laughs> what we both were feeling using almost no data, right? So it shows not only that they're tuned into you and they have an awareness of where you are, but they also have that database to pull from that of experience and resources. And so they're not, this isn't something that's made up. It's coming from actual, like so it's actually coming from somewhere. Yeah, it's uh, basically they've mapped out the emotional game tree. <laughs> like, That's exactly, it, dude. Whenever I listen to Esther Perel talk, I, I'm my mind is just blown every single time because it, that's exactly what it feels like. It feels like there's a solver for humans, and she's not only correct but describing it in a way that I can understand and empathize with and feel, and I which, love that. Yeah, yeah, tying tying it into what we said earlier is the sign of of uh, somebody that knows their shit. Exactly correct. Exactly correct. And so that's one thing that I would look for in terms of that, that kind of resonating feeling that I was talking about. Another thing that I would very much pay attention to is how much they are actually listening to you. So I've interacted with a lot of coaches and in interviewing some therapists, and it was less about what I was saying and more about their ideas. And if you get that feeling where it's them waiting for their turn to talk versus actually listening, synthesizing, and then responding, that's a really big red flag for me that I look for in terms of interacting with professionals. Yeah. And they're just, I mean, basically making decisions. Um, they pre-made the decision. And so they're just kind of waiting to describe their decision instead of taking the data points as they come, which by the way, is an easy pitfall to fall into like as a coach, as a communicator, even as like a podcaster, like right now, um, because yeah, there's a lot of balls in the air um, all at the same time. And you've got to kind of manage all of them and like segue into the next thing, but also, uh, communicate effectively in the moment too, but hold on to that segue so that you don't forget it. Um, if that makes sense. 100%. I think that that's actually that, that what you're just, what you're describing in terms of managing all the like juggling, all those different balls is usually not appreciated. Cause if you're doing a good job of it, nobody can tell. And, and that's, I think, another really good thing to pay attention to with a coach. And that's why you need to be aware that you're looking for it. Because if you're having a conversation and it just feels in flow and it feels good and you're being responded to at the appropriate cadence, you're being listened to at the appropriate cadence, you shouldn't even know that that's happening because they're just so tuned in and good at what they're doing, right? That's a good coach or a good therapist. And so you have to actually know to look for it or a good podcaster, right? Like li listening to someone like Tim Ferriss, he... I don't love 100% of the work that he does, but I have an immense amount of respect for the way that he has conversations and the way that he leads people through conversations because it's so, it feels intuitive when you know that there is a lot of intuition because he's, he's practiced his art over time, but there's also a system in place to kind of guide, guide that intuition as it's moving around. It's funny that that's never occurred to me that like, 
oh, everybody else is doing the same thing, like coaches and other people who run podcasts. And, and it's something that you do appreciate when you kind of understand what it feels like because you've gone through it, so you know. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, that that's those are greatness bombs, man. Those those are great. You've survived preflop boot camp. You've shot the fish in a barrel. Now, prepare yourself for the feeding frenzy. A comprehensive strategy for gutting every fish in your player pool. Data-driven hero bluffs, light call-downs, and perfect value bets that are maximally designed to hurt some feelings. Feeding Frenzy. Available now at ChasingPokerGreatness.com slash Feeding Frenzy. So, okay, I, I asked the question and got us way, way down in the weeds um, of a bunch of good and great things. Going back to school, you know, yep. you mentioned you got a job yep. and you were, once again, not as smart as you thought you were. <laughs> um, what, when did you pursue poker again instead of a career post-graduation? That was about, what year is it, the beginning of 2018 is when I started to come back to poker. I actually moved to Las Vegas. A good friend of mine, Ryan Fee, he called me up. I was living in Asia with a friend of mine. He was like, yo, I'm going to start a hedge fund, move to Vegas with me. And so he, me and my friend Shura, my friend Borg and Fees all lived in this big bro castle. And we started a high frequency trading crypto hedge fund and went pretty well. I stepped down from that about seven to eight months into it and once I'd stepped down, I had randomly played a tournament at the Venetian where I banked third for like 45K and was like, oh, well, I'm not really doing anything. Maybe I I'm, live in Vegas. I don't have really have any, pro I was freelancing as well at the time and I didn't have any projects in my funnel when it came to um, the business side of my, the business side of my career, which was focused around product development, project management, um, data science, stuff like that. Why, why'd you step away from the, uh, the fund? It didn't make sense for me to work on it anymore. My my skill set wasn't needed. And it was mm. actually, I think, I think it was hindering the development of the fund. And after I had left, it started doing way better. And how so did, that's how did that feel? Did you recognize that? Did it hurt to leave? No, you can it was something that I could feel because it was it was about the day-to-day -day interactions with who with the other people that I was working with. And so it was very obvious something wasn't working because there was a mismanagement of expectations. Uh, one of the other, uh, one of the partners on the fund had a specific way that he wanted me to do work and the kind of projects that he wanted me to take on. And that wasn't one within my skill set, but also wasn't in my area of interests. And so there was a, something that I call a fundamental incompatibility in terms of the working arrangement for the fund. And in that situation, it was more important to me to have the fund be successful as well as for you to maintain the relationships with these people that I loved and cared about. And so it just made sense for me to step down. And I'm actually, I'm stoked that they're doing well. It, I don't feel any jealousy when other people are doing work to crush because I know how much works it, I know how much work it takes to get to where they are. Like these people, the, the, the people who are still working on this project, we're spending 12 to 15 hours a day on this thing. And so they deserve the accolades because they were able to structure something. Like I did the work that I needed to do in terms of coming on, getting like, the process and the operations infrastructure aligned. 
And then there wasn't really anything else for me to do, but they had a lot to do. And so the fact that they were successful without me is something that I'm stoked for more than ashamed or jealous about. And I mean, that's a very evolved take on the situation, right? Like, do, <laughs> yeah. you, do you think that that would have always been your take on the situation or any growth necessary that led to that? It would definitely not have always been my take. And I think that the big transition for being able to find stoke in other people's wins versus jealousy came in my own self-love and self-confidence. When you are comfortable inside of yourself, you do not compare as often to the people or the world around you. It's, it's, just, it's more so a, it's a level of awareness that you kind of have in terms of how you interact and what you kind of need to be successful. And once I had that self-love and self-confidence, it was easier for me to see like, oh, this actually, I'm not the right person for this anymore. Like, and that's okay. It's okay that I'm not correct, that it will do better without me. That doesn't mean I'm a bad person. That doesn't mean that they're bad people. It's just the way that shit is. It's the way that this system is set up. And my job is to not have an emotional interaction with it, but just to evaluate what's going on and then make the appropriate decisions. Awesome, man. That's, yeah. that's great. Um, yeah. So you, you play a think, tournament and you- think, got third and I was like, oh, maybe like, and I'd been playing poker through my time away. Like I've been still playing and keeping up with things. What I hadn't- oh, Ryan's clearly doing stuff, right? Like at that, yeah. that period oh, yeah. of time. A hundred percent. Yeah. He was, he's still running upswing at the time. And what ended up happening was I started playing a little bit more and then realized that I still had a pretty big advantage in the game, but the big, the big, Point of transition for me to really get back into poker was learning just how powerful um, solving software had gotten. Because outside of poker, my main area of study was actually in machine learning. Like when I, the, my, the first company I worked for, they did um, high frequency trading in the ad space. So they were a programmatic advertising company. And I was one of the lead analysts at that company. And so I got really deep in with the research and modeling team about how to actually use machine learning to effectively make decisions in the real world. And so coming back into poker and being like, wow, this exists, this is real. And no one is using it, right? Because it's, it, it's not trivial in a lot of situations, especially for PLO, because it takes so long to run Sims and you need to have some sort of an understanding of this entire space. Once I thought that that was real, it, it pushed me pretty hard to wanting to take advantage of it because it felt like the, um, it felt like the combination of the work that I've been doing outside of poker and the work that I've been doing within poker. And then the other really big aha moment was when Ryan had asked me if I knew anybody who could make a PLO course for upswing. And I couldn't think of anyone other than myself. And then Chris, who is my friend slash a teacher at the time, because he's really the one that helped get me into game theory and then show me, show me truly how it worked to get to the point where I was a subject matter expert at it. And so that got to combine everything in my entire life that I loved. I got to teach and I've been, I've been teaching and tutoring since I was 12, literally. That's the first job I've ever had was tutoring math. Um, I got to do product development with Upswing and actually building out this product and mapping it out. I got to do content marketing where I started a Twitch stream, started a Twitter and all that jazz, and then got to do it around poker with a, fr with a friend of mine. And so it truly felt like this culmination of everything that I've been working out in my entire life for one project. That's pretty sick when everything comes together in that way. It's, it's one of those situations where it's such a slam dunk win that you need to be able to see it. And that's, I think, a characteristic of all the people that have been successful in their careers in life generally. 
they're really good at finding the spots and then seeing the spots. And that's something that I've tried to train over my life as well. It's like being aware of an opportunity, the expected value of that opportunity, not just the immediate monetary side, but how it can grow moving forward. And I saw that I was like, oh, if I can build a course at Upswing and have it do well and be good enough to actually do it, right? Because you actually have to be good enough to make a course at Upswing. You're not just allowed to YOLO it. You have to have the results and be able to prove it. If I can make all that happen, there is a beautiful trajectory for my career in my life. And that, that project just pushed me in that direction. And I'm just, I'm riding it since that's about three years into it at this point. Nice, man. And from there, you know, you, you were playing live. I mean, you, you, so like your career at that point, you know, you, you stopped, you transitioned, you make the course, you launch it. Um, what were your thoughts there? Like after the course is launched, was it, it just like made all the sense in the world to continue down this path and kind of build, um, off of, you know, the credibility that you have, uh, after building the course and all the influence and all that stuff. Yep. Exactly. Correct. I immediately, so I actually primarily am an online player generally from, for most of my career, my, I play live because it's fun and I enjoy playing tournaments and that's in, especially in the US, you really only get to play big PLO in live tournaments, generally speaking. But yeah, I launched the course, launched my Twitch stream, and then immediately did a bankroll challenge where I was trying to build 5K into 25K, grinding up the stakes using specific rules, um, which was re- just like a relatively standard aggressive bankroll strategy, and immediately hit like a nasty downswing. And it, what I projected to take a month ended up taking me three months. <laughs> I was just grinding one, two online. And I'm watching all these big games running and not allowed to play it because I'm in the middle of this bankroll challenge. And so that was a, that was an intense experience, but also one that was fantastic because I'd already worked on my game a ton up to that point in order to beat the games that I needed to beat to make this course. And then also make the course do all the work that's required to make a game theory uh, product in, in modern poker. But then it forced me again to go back and reevaluate and say, okay, I've learned all of this. Now, how is it not actually meshing in the player pools that I'm in? Or am I just running bad? I got some more coaching and that it kind of, it was kind of like a pressure cooker for me because I came out of that thing. One stoked that I didn't give up because I was just breaking even at one, two PLO for like a month and a half, which felt awful after playing much bigger I, for, I've, yeah. I've played the one, two PLO online and I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> I can imagine uh, you feeling pretty bad. Yeah. It did not feel good. But coming out of the other side of it, I just felt really prepared to to kind of approach the rest of my career. And what was fascinating is that while all that was happening, that was also at the same time that I was going through the anxiety awareness stuff and all that self-work. And so when 2020 started, uh, which so 2019, first year of COVID, super challenging year for me personally in terms of growth and a lot of different stuff. Towards the end of the year, I started doing ketamine therapy, which is great. Now you can actually go to a doctor's office and do these things, which is phenomenal. And I love that. And now that, wait, what year is it? It's 2021. So no, that was 2020. <laughs> that was 2020. So that was last year. And then starting off at this year, it's like it, all the gears have been rolling really, really well. Made, made my intro course, which one, which I was super stoked on because I felt like I was good enough at PLO to teach it to beginners. And that's always been something that's been very challenging for the entire poker industry because PLO is a very complicated game. To be able to be able to break it down into some basics is something that it's a project that I'm really proud of and happy that I accomplished. But then this year, it's just felt like all the gears are running on full steam. I've been crushing in terms of my coaching, in terms of my playing, in terms of my personal life. Like everything has felt good. And that's something that it feels like I've earned 
and as all and also have gotten help to get to from the people around me. So that's been really cool. Yeah, it's good, man. Cel- celebrate the wins. Hell like, yeah, huge thing. Ce- celebrate the wins. Yep. Um, you have a quote here that you, was on your Twitter. Uh, so many people chase money to live a good life, yet forget to live a good life along the way. Tell me why that quote resonates with you so much. Throughout my life, I think that I've always been focused on where I want to go because I knew what my quote unquote potential was, right? In terms of uh, making money or what my career would look like or whatever. And if you're always, and for me, it always felt like I was moving towards something, but wasn't as grounded in the world around me. And when that's the case, you don't actually get to see all of the wins that are happening constantly. Like you just said something really awesome, which is celebrate the wins. And there are wins happening every single day. It just depends on your perspective. And my my perspective was very long-term focused. And this is particularly in like my mid-20s when I was trying to set myself up for success in my 30s or whatever. And since I've been able to kind of take a step back and then just have more fun, be more grateful. And I think the gratitude really comes from that taking a step back and just seeing what's happening immediately in front of you. As that has become more a part of my life, I've just felt so much healthier, generally speaking. Yeah, we... We touched on something earlier about, you know, unplugging for a day and just taking mm-hmm. time away from all the things. And, you know, the reality is like we live in a we live in a world that has only existed for 15 years or so where, you know, with machine learning, with yeah. just all the things, the uh, super scientists engineering our phones and iterating with data and basically making everything um just optimal is pulling our attention away from all the present moment all the time. And if you don't disconnect, if you don't push these things away, then you really don't get to appreciate the present moment and being in the here and now. And I think that that's just a battle that this generation has to fight. Um, just you know, gaining control back of our attention and realizing that, like you know. Yeah, I can go on a walk without a phone and by myself and just be in my own head and like that's okay. That's like that's like a thing that's like acceptable, you know, just being in my own head and not um reading my Kindle or being on my phone or playing the Switch or watching a show, just like being by yourself. And yeah, so, I, so it's just easy to get distracted and lose sight of the present moment, um dream about the future, ruminate about the past. But the reality is, like you said, there are lots of wins every single day if we pay attention and if we can be uh, grateful for them. That's very well said. I, I love all the words that you just uh, that you put together there. I'd say that to add to it, for some of us, it's easier said than done, right? Just saying, I want to put these things. I'm sure that there's people watching this podcast right now that want to be able to do that. But so many habits have been created around the systems that you're describing. It's hard. And the reason why these systems are powerful is because they're designed literally to get your attention, to bring you out of what is around you. And it's being done by people that are really, really smart and machines that are designed for these specific purposes. One thing that I put a heavy, uh, that I really heavily invested into this year 
was my breathwork and my mindfulness practice. So I hired a, a breathwork slash mindfulness. I'm not allowed to call him a Zen coach because Zen is a very specific thing. It's something that I've learned, but um, his name is Luke and he works with uh, our breath collective. And him and I actually designed a curriculum that is breathwork for poker players. And that's something that I, I designed it initially for to maybe turn into a course. And it actually just turned into me building it for me, where I just am getting to work with this breathwork guru dude who is an awesome human and has these really powerful tools that are actually stupidly applicable for poker. And once you find them applicable to poker, you realize that they're actually applicable outside of poker as well, because it's all the same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> What's interesting here, like, so I have the breathwork app on my phone and suggested to like all of my students and yeah. you're telling me, so like you have one designed for poker players that only you use, like what yeah. are, are we going to like release this or sell Maybe. this at, at any point? Come on, man. You can't keep it for yourself. We I, need it's, it. It's, it's not going to be kept for myself. I haven't decided <laughs> what to do with it yet. My, my, I work with my current students. So that was actually one thing through the, I actually became like a certified breathwork instructor through this, through this process where I actually feel comfortable teaching breathwork now. How long so, does that take? So generally speaking, I think it's a six month program that uh, OBC does. Uh, for me, it took two because me and Luke were working together every day, sorry, um, every week, three to four days a week for two hours at a time. And so it was very, it was like an intensive, it, my pre WSOP prep work, it was less focused on um, getting better from a game theory perspective. I still was keeping up to date and doing coaching and stuff like that. But the main focus was on this breath work. Uh, it's breathwork slash mindfulness practice that I was building out inside of myself. And that shit works. Like It is so obvious that it works too, especially when, when I was playing and I was playing pretty big through most of the summer, both online and live and in tournaments. And I just felt like I had the toolbox to navigate effectively in a way that I hadn't known that I didn't have before. Like that was a big thing is that I thought that I was really good at this before, before this world series. I thought that I was aware and had done meditation and then all this stuff. And now actually having learned it and built it out effectively, I could, I just could feel the difference. It was very, very obvious. I remember I was talking to uh, Stephen Shitwick at a, uh, like a house hangout um, in the middle of the summer at some point. And he was saying how he also not in the same way that I did, but had also gone through a very specific training that had to do with like his body's physical responses to the stimulus of poker, whether that be um, for a lot of people, it would be getting sucked out on. For me, it was more so about if I make mistakes or if I'm losing focus. Like those are things that I didn't realize I was having as intense of a physical response to until I learned the systems that were causing those responses. And that was what a lot of this training was about, as well as how to actually interface with them effectively. Right. So there is a there is a specific type of breathwork that you can do to stimulate your parasympathetic nervous system, which is getting your anxiety responses to calm down. And so if I'm at a table and my heart starts pumping because I'm running a big bluff, I can do specific breath work to get my body to actually calm down so that you couldn't, you can't tell the difference between the two. Or if I'm feeling a little anxious before a final table, I can do some breath work to get me calmed down. If I'm feeling tired because it's one in the morning and I've been playing for 12 hours, I can do some breath work to get my body, my sympathetic nervous system firing. So just having these tools and treating myself like the human monkey machine that I am was super impactful for the series for me. Um, please let me know whenever you do something <laughs> with this, because it, like you at least have one customer in me and mo pr probably all of my students as well. Yeah, um, sure. You mentioned losing focus, right? Uh, mm -hmm. With the breath work. 
could you tell me what what's an indicator that you're losing focus that you need to like recenter um while you're playing like how do you gain awareness of that that's a phenomenal phenomenal question it's actually something that i talk about with my students the first thing that i always do because this is going to be different for everybody is i have them run an exercise where they actually are trying to be aware and whatever that and i i leave that vague on purpose because their job is to sit at a poker table and try to be aware of what's going on whether that be looking how people are playing or counting their like or as they're making an action being really attentive to what their body is doing whatever they think being aware is and then i have them try to observe their habits and what they'll notice is that a lot of their habits come when they're not aware. For example, let's say that you lose a big pot and then for the next five minutes, just start counting your chip stack meticulously to know exactly how much you're up or down. You no longer are paying attention to what's happening in front of you. You're creating a story in your head that it's important to know what your chip stack is because it's important to know how much you're up or down. And so awareness is the first piece and then building out what your individual idiosyncrasies are or what your habits are when you aren't aware and so you try to pay attention and then when you kind of zone out and realize you're not paying attention what is your body doing and that's that's the first thing is if you tell someone to be aware of something it makes it so much easier for them to know that they're not being aware because they're actually trying to do it they got a target yeah exactly exactly correct and then from there, you can start to reprogram what's going on. So for some students, for example, literally I'll have them do something where as a dealer is breathing, like as the dealer is starting to deal out, they have to take two breaths intentionally, the beginning of every hand. And what that does is it gets them off their phone. It gets them outside of counting their chips. They build this habit where every single hand, they do one thing. And then from there, everything actually starts to fall into place a lot easier because it's, it's similar to if you had a bad diet, not knowing you had a bad diet, seeing someone who had a healthy diet, seeing how they looked physically or inter responded energetically, wanting to get there, and then having that person show them why it's unhealthy, right? You have to, you have to know that there is this difference between what is aware and then what is kind of autopiloting. And then once you see that delta, it's easier to iterate towards the awareness section of it. Yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. What would you do for online poker players um, to recenter? Yeah, uh, around online poker, what I do for myself, generally speaking, is drop down in tables because a lot of what ends up happening is poker players try to play more tables so that they can be more focused. But in reality, their focus doesn't change. They have the exact same amount of focus that they would have had. They're just now spending more bandwidth trying to do a bunch of stuff and then missing a lot of opportunities. So dropping down in tables is a really good thing to do at first. And then being aware of what you're actually doing outside of the hand. So you can be outside of a hand, you can be scrolling Twitter, you could be watching the wire on the side, or you could be saying, okay, cutoff opens, I'm on the button, I fold. But what was their opening range supposed to be? What is my response supposed to be at X, at X frequency? And then what are the blinds supposed to do given the different nodes of the game tree? So you can drop down to three tables and then be way more mentally engaged if you know the appropriate questions to ask yourself. And this is where I think a lot of online poker players struggle. And I'm sure that you've seen this in your coaching as well, is that when they're outside of the hand, they're not even, they're not paying attention anymore. But there's so much that you can be doing in terms of training and practicing when you're outside of a hand. Another thing is to actually, similar to the live poker, start to figure out what is your like, am I tilted checklist? 
For example, let's say you lose a big pot. Do you immediately go to your cashier and open it up and look at what your balance is? That's something that I have struggled with. Almost every poker player I've ever talked to has struggled with this, right? And so if you are at the beginning of a session, you get sucked out on, you're not going to look at your thing. You're two hours in, you're kind of getting tired. You're down five buy-ins. Every open and then you get three bet and then, they, and then you fold, you're going to check your balance every single time. Yeah. And so learning that that's one of your, uh, that that's one of your habits that you've built when you are maybe less aware or a little more tilted, that's something that you also want to build on. And that's different for, that's different for different people. So it goes back to the same answer of building out the vocabulary of what you do personally, and then using that awareness. Yeah. So one good tactic may be to record yourself playing, um, mm -hmm. get some game tape on, you know, what you're paying attention to, what your habits are, just do a full screen record. So you can see when you're checking your hold of manager, you're like looking at your all NEV, you're looking at your cashier, you're surfing Twitter or whatever it is to gain more awareness of your habits. If you just don't know. 100% correct. I think that is a phenomenal thing to do. And then also giving yourself specific rules. So the same thing uh, with live poker as a dealer is dealing something out, you take two breaths intentionally. Maybe you have to take one orbit off every 45 minutes, no matter what, like you're a tournament player, you, you, no matter what you set a timer, the timer goes off, you hit sit out next big blind at every single table, you get up and you do 10 jumping jacks or whatever it is. So you build a system that is a little bit like training wheels at the beginning, but they're going to keep you in line because it makes it easier to have those good habits, right? If, if you're taking a break by definition, you're going to be less tilted because you're going to be moving away from the poker table. I'm sure all of us, there's a really intense phenomena which is we feel super, super tilted until we get up and walk away. And then when we're physically away from our computer for a minute, the tilt will, dis will dissipate at an exponential rate, like super, super fast. And so if you built that into your structure of playing that you have to get up every 45 minutes, even if you're feeling good, now it'll be just be so much easier to get up in general because you see how easy it is. And so you start to feel, let's say that you're more tilt prone that day. Let's say you woke up a little bit anxious, right? You still wanted to put it in a session because you wanted to push yourself, but you knew that your bandwidth was lower than it would normally be. Maybe it's every 30 minutes instead of every 45 minutes now. So you can kind of use your own self-awareness to adjust your habits as you need to. Like you treat yourself like a monkey machine because that's what we are, right? And, it's like, as long, and so if you know how you function, you can optimize it for yourself. It's that awareness piece that's really big. And where does that research come from taking the edge off, from walking away, like the emotions dissipate? Yeah, so that's that actually comes from my poly coach. Uh, so my partner and I, we were transitioning from uh, monogamy to polyamory, and we hired an apps. She is rad, super smart. Her name is Liz. Um, and one of the biggest rules that comes from couples generally is if you're in an argument and you feel as if your voice is getting raised, one person, no matter what, is always allowed to call a timeout. There, and there's zero repercussions at any point in time. So let's say me and my partner are having a disagreement and I don't feel as if she's hearing me, I call a timeout. And the reason why is because when we start to get angry, I think it's our prefrontal cortex starts firing and then our logic part of our brain just shuts off. And we're interacting with the purely monkey side of like the, like the, the emotional response side without any logic going through it. And so actually getting that part of your brain to stop firing by having the stimulus that's causing it to fire removed from you allows everything to calm down. And if you allowed to go, you can now go back to that conversation, or in this case, go back to playing, right? Cause you took a, took a little break with your body in a more central space, like in, in, a, in a more normalized space, and then be able to approach it again. Yeah. Or uh, 
I would imagine that you could realize that like it's time, you know, time to time to kill the switch, right? Like just, yeah, just kill the it, session. It, yeah. In in the session, you're like, okay, like you emotions go down and you're like, yeah, I'm just not I'm not feeling it right now. Whereas if you just sat there, you probably wouldn't have that awareness. Exactly correct. Exactly, exactly correct. This is actually the way that I talk to my students about this is if they notice that something is happening and they have an awareness of it, they go up, they take a break, they come back, and then it keeps happening, they're now too drunk to drive, right? They 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 no they no longer are mentally balanced enough to be able to consent to keep playing. Right. Because it's, it's the same thing. Like, that's what happens is when we get tilted, we lose our ability to actually evaluate objectively what's happening. Right. And so if you can notice that something happens, you take a break, you come back, happens again, take a longer break, come back and it's still happening. I don't care what you try to do to get it to calm down. You're not you're not too drunk to play poker. Right. Just from that emotional perspective. Yeah. You need to recover, rest, recover and reset. Come. Yeah. Uh... Live, live to fight again another day. Exactly correct. Um, so, yeah, I think I think we, we can segue to our uh, to our lightning round questions. Um, sure. Let's see. So, for lightning round, um, I guess what, what's the most unexpected thing that's come from your journey through the world of cards? Uh, the friends is the most unexpected. I when I was growing up, I remember watching like all the big names on TV and thinking, wow, it'd be so cool to have that life. But what I didn't realize is what I really wanted was be so cool to be around those humans and to be inside of that space. And that's what I'm the most grateful for nowadays, like my friends and the people around me from the poker world. Cause all like the biggest crushers that you hear of are just genuinely almost always awesome humans. And to be around those people is the thing that I didn't know that I wanted the most in terms of like the community. Why do you think that is? I think it's really hard to get to the top. And I think that you need to do it with friends. And so generally speaking, the people that have got like upswing is a great example, like Doug and Ryan and their crew, they didn't do it as an individual node. They did it as a group. And as a group, they all got to the top. And if I, if I can think of like Scott Seaver, he had his whole crew, like all those dudes that got to the top in poker have a crew. And so that's why you see the biggest crushers generally also being pretty good humans. And it's because they had to have friends to get to where they are. Yeah, I'm yeah. so over the last few days, I've launched a coaching for pro, uh, profit mm-hmm. um, team, basically, that mm-hmm. I'm calling the CPG Wolves. And it's for that reason, like just hearing the same stories over and over and over again in this space about team and exponential growth and just the same story over and over and over again. And as a coach, I don't know if this um, resonates with you, but sometimes you, you there's a lot of churn as it relates to new students, right? So like you get new students, some students drop away, some you maintain over time, but doing the same sessions routinely, like going over like the same lowest hanging fruit mistakes as a coach, it can be repetitive, right? It's like, Oh, I've talked about this 50 times in the past three months. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, where it's like, I wish I could just share this with everyone, um, but that would cannibalize my coaching business and probably not the greatest uh, business move that I've ever made. So basically to align incentives, I realized like, just do a coaching for profit, um, just go for it, build a team, have information sharing across the board, build relationships. And I think that's the best way for people, human beings to make progress in the space 
um, to fast track it, basically. I think that that's true specifically for you as a person, because you're having that emotional response to re reteaching the basics over and over again. Yeah. It makes perfect sense for you that that's what you, that that's what you need. I like, I don't really care what I'm teaching. I, I just love it. I love it, dude. Coaching is one of my, like, I, I will answer this. Like one thing that I'm not a huge fan of is answering the same preflop questions. Cause you can go look at a chart, but when it comes to teaching the way to approach poker, the thought process, I love that it's going to be different for every single person. And that's why coaching is my, I, I truly feel like it's my soul work. Cause I love it. I love that every person, even if I'm giving them the same information needs to be taught it differently. And That's so true. Uh, yeah, the, the communication yeah. technique does need to change from person to person. It does. And so the content doesn't matter as much to me personally. Like, I don't feel that same grind. Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. I, I think what I've learned about myself is a thing that it's interesting. The thing that moves me is solving problems and mm -hmm. solving high level problems. That's the thing that like, basically when I'm looking at something in my fucking brain hurts and I'm like, oh my God, I'm never going to solve this thing. And then like putting it down, disconnecting, going to sleep and waking up and just having ideas about like how to effectively solve this problem. Um, just keep coming back to it. Like that's a thing that I really love and I really value. Um, and I guess when coaching a thing that happens, like I said, it, I've, the, the big problems are in the communication space, understanding the low hanging fruit and communicating that to people effectively. And then if like, I guess, I guess I like challenges, right? Like I need the next really difficult challenge just because I'm a masochist, I guess yeah. <laughs> I, I like struggling mentally. No, I have, I have empathy with that. The, the other side to that coin. And we talked about this at the beginning is that I liked it too much. I really, re I, I love the hard problems and the intense things to try to figure out so much so that it took away from the rest of my life. And so I, that is very true. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's interesting as I've actually started to do, to put myself in those spots less, my, not only quality of life, but my work has gotten exponentially more successful because I, that the, you, you, you said it, you said it specifically taking a step back getting that break, you get to come back with more energy. And so if I'm like, th this is my first day back from work in two weeks and I'm dialed today. Like I can feel it and I'm going to continue to be dialed and I'm going to take it into like, I'm going to go play at the 10K at the five diamond tomorrow. And I know that I'm going to be that way because I got that break. And so, and I actually think it makes a lot of sense thinking more into the coach for profit thing. Cause not only is it about the, um, the joint mentality, but for you, it's now a new problem you have to solve, which is how do you design a community and a system for this community to effectively navigate itself, given its goal of unified crushing and making all the dollars. So that's yeah. now it's an additional problem. And that's a hard problem to solve because it has to do with humans and yeah. human, ne human networking problems. Have, you can spend an infinite amount of time on them and they still won't be perfect no matter what. Yeah. I have uh, an app that the name of it is escaping me, but you read books. Uh, it's like cliff notes for books that you can mm -hmm. go through like pretty quickly. I mm -hmm. uh, can't think of the name, but anyway, yeah, I'm like just constantly consuming like leadership and communication books and like just all the time because it is a big problem, like building a, a team in poker and setting, and it's a, not only is it a big problem, it's a big responsibility that I feel to yep. make an impact because like, I feel like, like, this is what these people deserve, right? Like they deserve 
the best and the best chance of achieving success because they've trusted and invested in me. So, you know, I have to give it everything I have. Um, you can see like the future problem though, is like, oh, what, what happens when it's, when I've got it like firing all, all cylinders and I can like take a step away, maybe I'll just, <laughs> I'll, I'll just want the next problem, the next bigger problem to solve. Yeah, the first time I ever felt this in my life, uh, my junior year of college, I was playing live big poker at the time. This was I, during college. I also played a decent amount. Um, and this was the year I turned 21. So I was playing pretty big. And then I had a research, I had a research um, position, which was really cool as an epidemic modeling, taking four upper division statistics and probability theory courses. I had a partner, I was tutoring. I was doing all of that, burnt out super hard, and then moved to Vietnam for five months. And that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me ever. It was such a beautiful experience. My first week there it was like day four, you know, the adrenaline of being there had calmed down. I was sitting in a hammock with nothing to do. I was freaking out because <laughs> I was working 16 hours a day back in the US. And now I'm just sitting in a hammock with nothing to do, nowhere to go, not, no stimulus. You're in Vietnam. Like it's, I, was, I wasn't even in the city. I was in like a more rural part of Vietnam. And I had to learn how to sit in a hammock. And I think that that's what you're like, kind of what you're describing is when, when you take a step back from this, you're going to have to learn how to not solve problems for some amount of time. And it, it's a skill. It's like for some people, they have to learn how to solve problems. For some people, they have to learn how to not solve problems. Right? Yeah. And it's a grass is greener thing for both. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, I just had Nick Howard on the pod who's built up poker detox and he's taking a step back and he alluded to the same thing of like, I had to learn how to not do anything like, mm -hmm. and it took me like a year <laughs> to just learn how to like not do things. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, life is always fun and exciting and there's new challenges and new areas to grow. And I, I think that I I'm just always looking forward to, to that and trying to enjoy the moment as well. And like the feeling of excitement of taking on a new project, right? Like this is, oh, yeah. a, this is a transitory emotion. It's going to fade and just enjoy it while we have it. Yeah. It's fun being high on that, on that stoke, right? Cause you're, it's totally a feeling of being high because things sure. are, because you're getting so many wins constantly. It's addicting. And I love that feeling. And I'm, I'm stoked for you that you've created that for yourself. That's awesome. I appreciate that, man. Oh, yeah. That. Um, let's see. If you could put up a billboard, every poker player's got to drive past on the way to the casino. Stole this one from Tim Ferriss, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, that's why I smiled when you said it. Just, yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I like the shift that you made that every yeah. poker player has to do on the way to the casino. Small, small shift. Um, yeah. What would your billboard say? Have fun, be patient, and listen to yourself. And if you could wave a magic wand, and change one thing about poker. I'm opening like a giant can of worms yeah, here yeah, that yeah. will take us beyond four minutes. Sure. Um, I'll try not to ask too many follow-ups, but what, what would you change if you could wave that wand? Um, I'd change some of the cultural misogyny that exists, I'm pretty sure. Like, I think that like, not, maybe not just misogyny, but I think that the poker community in general has some beautiful, beautiful humans in it, but it also has some maybe stale perspectives um, particularly around interacting with women, interacting with dealers. It's a real, another huge one where a lot of the time we kind of remove the fact that it's another person that we're interacting with. And because we're in a competitive environment with money surrounded by it, it, it has a tendency to bring out some very meh characteristics of people, whether that's yelling at a dealer, whether it's not 
speaking to women appropriately at the poker table. There's, there's some parts of our community that are beautiful that I have grown so much with, but I also think there are parts of our community that need to change and grow in order for us to be able to transition into the new generation. Because like Jen, Gen, is it Gen Z or Gen X? The, 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 young, the young folk nowadays, they don't give a, they don't care where you came from, what your gender is. They can't, like, it's very much about, are you a good person or not? Yeah. And how are you interacting with the people around you? And in poker, because it's been such a boys game, like a white dude boys game for a long time because money was involved, right? That, that has permeated the poker space and is still a part of the, the cultural ethos. And I'd want that to change more than anything else. Yeah, I had Jen Fisher on, who is partners with Linda Johnson and Dealer in the 80s, and mm-hmm. late 70s and 80s and 90s. And, you know, kind of asked her, like, what the experience was like back then. And Sounds she intense. said, not good. Not yeah, not good was the experience. And <laughs> I, I asked her, I didn't ask her to name names about who was terrible, yeah. but I asked her who was not terrible, like who was kind to people and treated people well. And one of the more devastating moments of this podcast for me was when she had like three names and dealt to everybody. And that to me was like, wow, like these are people that like I've held in such high esteem forever. And yeah, it's just a, a devastating reality of just the culture of poker in the seventies and eighties. And, um, even gave them a chance too. you know, I asked her if anybody had w- approached her and like apologized for their actions. Like yeah. n- not, not one person had, had done that. And so that's, yeah, sad state of affairs back in the day. And hopefully, you know, the new generation is leading us to a much better place. I, I think, I think the, I love the leadership that we have now and I do think they are. I think so too. And one of my favorite things interacting with my Zoomer friends, because I have a couple like Landon Tice is one of my friends who's like 21, 22. He's exactly that way, right? Treat everyone kindly, is a good person, does not care who you are, where you come from. It's just like about how you show up to the table. And so I'm also confident that moving forward in time, especially if the more vocal people who have a little more power and influence in the community at large right now can push it that direction, I think that we'll be able to get there. Just it just take it takes time takes time to change a, a cultural ethos. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. you know, progress hopefully will happen over in the uh, ensuing years. I think so. Um, so final question, and uh, we'll wrap it up. Mm-hmm. If the Chasing Poker Greatness audience wants to learn more about you on the World Wide Web, where do they go? They go to twitter.com slash dweissman13. And then they can also go to my Instagram, which is at dr.gto, Dr. GTO. You can, those are the best two places to find me. I also, you, I still stream, I guess. I haven't streamed in a while, but it's twitch.tv slash cookies one. Um, you can find on my Twitter and my Instagram when I go live there. And I love, I love streaming. I just haven't had the bandwidth to do it recently, unfortunately. Where, where'd you get your, your degree from, man? Where, where'd you get your, your PhD and GTO? From the Jose Ingram School of Pot Limit Omaha. Literally, <laughs> literally, this was like six years ago, before I even knew, like when Joey was making GTO a meme and before I even knew game, like I knew game theory, but not from PLO. And he was like, yeah, this is Dr. GTO. And I was like, what are you doing, dude? Like, this is the <laughs> worst nickname to give somebody. <laughs> and thankfully, I've been able to take it back. Now it's a good, if you're a coach, it's a good nickname to have. If you're a random poker player, it's a bad one. <laughs> and so this, that was yeah. a very beautiful gift that Joey gave me that I get to like, take with me now. Nice, man. Cool. It's been great having you on. We'll do a round two sometime in the near future. Best of luck. Go kick ass and excited to really excited to 
for you to hit me up about your breathwork stuff. That's right. super pumped about that. Oh yeah. Thank you for having me. This has been an awesome conversation. My pleasure, man. All right. Take it easy. Thanks for listening to Chasing Poker Greatness. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. Go to ChasingPokerGreatness.com to get the newsletter. Join the Greatness Village community, book a coaching session, or dive into the latest data-driven poker courses. Follow the show on Twitter at CPG Podcast.